morning. Everybody hear me all right? Yeah, there we go. If you'll recall, last week I promised you that by the time I got up here this morning, we would figure out the microphone. Um, I'm thankful to Sam, to Josh, to guys that have made that possible because I don't know how to run these things. So uh, hopefully you've got your Bible with you. If you do, I'd ask you to open it up to Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3. We are uh, continuing on in our study through the book of Jonah. Uh, and uh, for most of us, if you'll recall, we've been acknowledging that until now, uh, our understanding of the book of Jonah has been limited to uh, the sort of the children's storybook Bible version of the story. We primarily encountered Jonah in vacation Bible school or in children's Sunday school, and, and we treat this story as if it's a children's fairy tale. Uh, but you'll recall that I've told you that the Jews do not view the book of Jonah through that lens. They take it quite seriously. In fact, they read the whole book of Jonah every single year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the highest, holiest day on the Jewish calendar. And so if Jews revere the book of Jonah to that degree, it would behoove us to wisely consider this book. And as you'll recall, the end of the public reading of the book of Jonah, the, the congregation gathered there would respond to the rabbi, we are Jonah, this communal confession that they too are guilty of the sins of Jonah. Last week, we encountered Jonah in the belly, probably one of the more familiar elements of the story. What we saw was that the most important thing was not what kind of sea creature that we were dealing with, but rather that this fish, this sea creature, was appointed by God. That God is sovereign over all things and that he is a good God who uses his sovereign authority to intervene in human lives with the lost he does that to draw them to himself in repentance and faith. And for those of us who are following Christ, he does it in discipline to further conform us to the image of Christ. We also saw that true repentance can only come when we realize, number one, our hopeless condition and our sin. Number two, our inability to trust in anything else to save us from that hopeless condition, the vanity of idols. And number three, the sole sufficiency of God's grace alone to save us. Finally, we saw that true repentance brings both changed attitude and changed actions, that repentance is not merely a matter of saying the right words, but it's living a life that has been changed by God. This week, we are going to find Jonah in the city, finally. We'll see Jonah preach, the Ninevites repent, and we'll see God relent. And as we do that, I hope that we'll continue to see how we are Jonah, how the story of this old minor prophet is so relatable and so applicable to our lives as 21st century American Christians today. So with that said, let's begin by reading the text and then we'll pray. Jonah chapter 3, we're actually going to begin as we have in previous weeks with the last verse of the previous chapter. It sets the stage for where we are. So Jonah chapter 2 verse 10. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. 
So Jonah arose and went to, went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger, anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege and the opportunity to be gathered together this morning for the study of your word. Lord, we thank you for the time that we have already spent in worshiping you and song and giving. And we come now hoping, longing, desiring to hear from you. Pray, God, that the people in this room will hear a, but, a much better sermon than the one that I have prepared, that your spirit will communicate your word to your people in a way that will transform lives for their eternal good and for the glory of your name. I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So we begin with verse 10. And as we have seen in the past weeks, the last verse of the chapter sets the stage for the next. This is a continuation of last week's theme of God's hand of sovereign discipline on his prophet. And in particular, it gets a little graphic here. I can't imagine being vomited out by a fish as a pleasurable experience. I don't know about you, but I'm really not a fan of puke. Um... As a parent, I encounter it more than I wish I did, and I struggle in those moments to remain faithful as a father. <laughs> There's not much more difficult than trying to clean up partially digested food that just smells at 1.30 in the morning when a child is puked all over the bed they're supposed to be sleeping in. Now... Imagine how much worse it would be if you yourself were actually an element of the puke and that that puke came forth from a sea creature large enough to swallow a man whole. Now, some of you think I'm taking a disgusting field trip by even discussing the puke of the fish, but I would submit to you that it's not in the text unless we're supposed to learn from it. And so what do we see in this? We note that nothing is wasted. When, when we last saw Jonah as a free man, not under the direct control of God's authority, he was on a boat headed due west, fleeing from the presence of the Lord. And over three days and three nights, as he was whining and complaining before finally repenting in the belly of the fish, all along the way, God was moving him toward his intended purpose. 
This fish is swimming back to the east, back in the direction of God's will and plan for Jonah's life so that when we arrive at dry, dry land, it's not a pleasant experience, but it's a profitable one. Jonah is puked up not just on dry land, but dry land back in the right direction. God doesn't waste anything. Brothers and sisters, if you are going through a season that feels like fish puke, I want you to hear from the word of the Lord this morning, God does not waste anything. He's always at work for our good and for his glory in and through our lives. So chapter 3, verse 1, we pick up with Jonah's story back on dry land, and we see something remarkable right away. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell to you. All throughout our study in the book of Jonah, we've been repeatedly encountering God's grace. But here I think we see God's grace at a different level. It was one thing for God to pursue and discipline and, re- and correct his rebellious prophet as he fled from God's presence. And it was deeper grace still that he would send the fish to spare Jonah's life as he plummeted into the depths. Jonah deserved to drown. But God's grace was saving him, sparing him by the fish, and that isn't the end. Here we see the depths of God's grace at a whole new level. This infinitely holy and just God with no tolerance for sin comes a second time to call Jonah to go to Nineveh. Think about how we would have handled this relationship if only humans were involved. I'll give you an example Say you own and operate the local Coke distributorship here in town, and it's time to make a delivery run to Burger King, a new round of Coke. You call your delivery driver, Jason, and tell him to go to Burger King to deliver Coke to Burger King. What you don't realize is that Jason has a special affinity for Coke only from McDonald's, a particular kind of cup and a special kind of formula. And so when you hang up the phone... Your delivery person, Jason, does not go to Burger King. Instead, he gets in his Coke truck, drives straight to St. Louis, and gets on an airplane headed for Australia. He will do anything to get away from Burger King Coke. Now, most people, if confronted with the situation, would fire Jason on the spot for his irresponsibility. A very gracious employer might bring him in, lecture him thoroughly, and then send somebody else to deliver the Coke to Burger King and just let him take care of McDonald's. But none of us would consider giving him a second chance. That's not the way God handles this situation, is it? God God doesn't just fire Jonah on the spot. In fact, God doesn't even just forgive Jonah, but he gives Jonah a second chance. Chance, And I don't want you to get the wrong impression as if God's hands were somehow tied in this. If you were to look into this time in Israel's history, there were two other prophets active in the nation of Israel, Amos and Hosea. And the biblical record gives them a far better reputation for faithfulness than Jonah. But God doesn't ditch Jonah and go grab Amos and send him to Nineveh. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah a second time. God doesn't bench Jonah. He doesn't just rescue him. He restores him to kingdom usefulness. So the application for us is that God is a God of second chances. If God has saved you, 
He intends to use you. If God has saved you, he intends to use you. In this, once again, we see that we are Jonah. We are Jonah. All of us mess up and have sin issues even after we've come to faith in Christ that we have to continue to repent of and need God to forgive us for. But nobody has too much sin baggage for God to be able to use them. God doesn't just forgive us but then stick us on the shelf to make sure that we don't embarrass him too much. That's not the way that he operates. He does not just rescue us from condemnation. He restores us to kingdom usefulness. God has a purpose for his children. Now, if you find yourself on the shelf of the Christian life, you are not actively serving the Lord. I would submit to you that God did not put you on that shelf, that you are there by your own choice, by your own doing. And that too is something you should repent of. Pray, seek the Lord's face. How would he have you serve? Because if God has saved you, he intends to use you. That is how he works. He does not just rescue, he restores. So what does Jonah do with the second chance that God has given him? Well, in chapter 1, when Jonah received this call, he fled and went in the opposite direction. Here in chapter 3, we're going to see that he obeys and goes toward Nineveh. So what happened? What changed between Jonah 1 and Jonah 3? Jonah chapter 2. Jonah chapter 2, last week's message where we saw this beautiful picture of how repentance changes everything. This may sound simplistic, but the example that we get here in the beginning of Jonah chapter 3 is a simple picture of repentance. God's call on Jonah's life, go east to this city. The rebellious prophet in Jonah chapter 1 walks in sin. He goes west. Jonah chapter 2, he repents. God calls him to go to this city in the east. Jonah chapter 3, he goes east. He turned around and went in a different direction. That is repentance. Brothers and sisters, when, when we repent of our sins, we turn away from our sin and we turn toward God in faithful obedience. We walk after him following Christ. At the end of verse 3, we, we see that it talks about Nineveh being this huge city. Um, scholars disagree and have conversations about how big and how many people and all these different things. Suffice it to say for this week, Nineveh, everyone agrees, Nineveh was the largest city in the ancient world, the biggest city in the ancient world. Next week, as we get toward the end of chapter four and God talks about the population of Nineveh, we'll talk about how big, uh, but we'll save that for next week. So then verse four, verse four, we arrive finally at Jonah the prophet doing what prophets are supposed to do. Jonah finally preaches. Chapter three, verse four tells us, Jonah began to go in, going into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Jonah's entire sermon was eight words in English. I don't know how they do this, but in Hebrew, it was only five words. No, it is not a point of application that sermons should only be five words long. But rather, what we see here is a simple message that Jonah is preaching to the people. And at first reading, Jonah's sermon looks like all judgment, all condemnation, no mercy, no call for repentance. And some scholars try to soften the blow of that. They're like, oh, well, this is like the, the thesis statement, or this is a summary, or maybe a sermon title. But if you read the text, it, it, that, that doesn't seem accurate. 
I mean, consider the biblical text itself reads like a quote. It says, and, and he called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. You get a little farther down into this passage, and the king's response down in verse 9 evidences that Jonah didn't promise mercy if they were to repent because the king's response is, who knows? Who knows? We don't know. So, and even farther down chapter 4, Jonah's attitude toward the Ninevites, Jonah was not going to ad-lib an offer of repentance. He hated these people. So I believe we have the entirety of Jonah's sermon recorded in these eight words. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And still explicit in this bad news preaching that Jonah does is an offer for mercy because what's the point? What is gained by coming and telling somebody horrible news unless there's an opportunity to somehow avoid, flee the wrath to come? We see that the Ninevites are going to respond to that implicit offer of forgiveness in a mighty way. For us, there is a clear lesson to be learned here, a lesson that I believe is vital, particularly to the American church in the 21st century. Good gospel preaching needs a heavy dose of the bad news. Good gospel preaching needs a heavy dose of bad news. Well, pastor, I thought gospel meant good news. It does. But we need to understand the bad news first. In our culture, there is an emphasis on positive thinking, positive speaking. We are a positive society. And so if you're going to talk to somebody about the gospel, then you're going to say something like this. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. I know that you have a good life now, but just trust in Jesus and you can have a great life, even an abundant life. Trust in Jesus today and he will give you love, joy, peace, and everlasting happiness. And while these things are statements of truth, they're not the whole story. And if you look closely, all of this so-called evangelism is not appealing to the gospel as we have it revealed in God's word. It's, re- it's appealing to man's selfish heart. You have a good life, but, but who wouldn't want a better life? And if the offer of the gospel is a better life, that's not good news at all. Because this life is fleeting. The problem with sharing the gospel in this way, there's too many to list. I'll give you just two right off the top. The focus on a message that sounds like that is on man and his happiness, not on God and his holiness. We've shifted the focus off of God. Secondarily, if someone hears that version of the gospel and responds to it, when inevitable trials, tribulations, and troubles come their way, that confession of faith will be chucked out the window. I thought God promised to give me love, joy, peace, and everlasting happiness, and here I am in this horrible situation. Clearly, the gospel wasn't true. We cannot fall victim to preaching this kind of gospel message because good gospel preaching involves a heavy dose of the bad news. One evangelist, Pastor Ray Comfort, likens good gospel preaching to the work of a doctor. Imagine patient one, the doctor comes in and says, I have some great news right here in this bottle. I have the greatest miracle of modern medical history. The medicine in this bottle can cure every kind of disease with just one drop. One drop, cure every disease, cure every kind of cancer. Do you want some? 
well, doctor, I, I don't have cancer. Why do I need that medicine? Compared to the conversation with patient number two, the doctor comes in and says, I have some bad news. In fact, it's the worst news you're ever going to receive. Cancer has filled your entire body. Tumors are multiplying in size by the minute. I can show you graphs. I can show you charts. Long story short, you have hours, maybe days to live. But I have in my pocket a medicine, one drop of which will destroy every cancer cell in your body. Which patient longs for that medication? The one that is convinced of their need. The greatness of the cure can only be understood in comparison in light of the magnitude of the need. And so that you don't think this is some clever evangelist trick or gimmick to make people understand the gospel, I would submit to you that this is the way Paul preaches the gospel. In fact, in Romans, we have probably the longest and greatest exposition of the gospel. And Paul does it this way. Romans chapter 1 Verses 16 and 17, it'll be on the screen. Paul introduces the topic of the gospel. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul introduces this topic of the gospel in a mere two verses. Two verses, and then from Romans chapter 1, verse 18, all the way down to Romans chapter 3, verse 20, Paul unloads 64 verses of horrible news. He preaches the bad news for over two chapters of the scriptures. I'll give you a sampling. Chapter 1, verses 21 to 23, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. It continues on, chapter 2, verse 5. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. This preaching of bad news culminates famously in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 to 18. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside together, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Ladies and gentlemen, this is bad news. For the Apostle Paul to be preaching the gospel, teaching us the gospel in Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3, this doesn't look much like good news. In fact, we get the impact of this bad news in Romans chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human 
being, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. That is seriously bad news. 64 verses of bad news. Bad news that before God, apart from Christ, men and women, boys and girls, stand utterly condemned in the presence of a holy God because of their sin, and works of the law will never declare them righteous. They are without hope. 64 verses of bad news. But there's hope. He begins in Romans chapter 3, verse 21, on a four and a half verse preaching of good news. And in fact, it's three and a half verses because one of the verses is a summary of the bad news. 64 verses make it 65 verses of bad news compared to three verses of good news. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Here's the bad news again. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Paul paints this stark black background of our bad circumstances in our sin through 64 verses of bad news so that when he lays three or four verses of glorious gospel over the top of it, it shines. Brothers and sisters, this is good gospel preaching. This is what good gospel preaching looks like. So the question I have for you is, is this what your gospel preaching looks like? Are you sharing the gospel with anyone? And to the extent that you are, are you lovingly, clearly explaining to them the bad news of their sin and their standing before God apart from Christ and their need for a savior? Or have you fallen victim to our culture's power of positive thinking where it would be offensive to talk to anyone about sin and death and hell and it's better to just tell them about God wanting a wonderful life for them? If we are going to be people of this book, we must preach a gospel that is centered on God and his holiness and not man and his happiness. God and his holiness is the topic of all of scripture, particularly the gospel. And man's happiness, man's joy results from worshiping God for who he is. So the application for us, good gospel preaching requires explaining the bad news of man's sin and the consequences thereof. Jonah indirectly calls the Ninevites to repent by spending his entire sermon preaching bad news. Paul proclaims the glories of the gospel in memorable verses like Romans 3, 21 to 25, because he spent all of Romans 1, 2, and the first half of 3 preaching the bad news of the fall of man and our depths of sin. Convince your hearer of the severity of their sin sickness, and they will long for the cure of Christ. In verses 5 through 9, we see the Ninevites repent. We got a very thorough lesson on repentance from Jonah last week in the belly, so I want to move quickly here, but I do want to note 
a couple of things about their repentance. In verse 5, it says that they believed God, called for a fast, and put on sackcloth. If you remember last week, we talked about repentance produces both changed attitude and changed actions. Changed attitude, they now believe God. Jonah comes and preaches in the name of a God that they have never met. And he preaches a message of condemnation. And yet now they believe in this God whom they've never heard of before Jonah's preaching. God does that work. He changes their heart. They now believe God. Changed attitude. And this changed attitude, this faith, produces changed actions. They call for a fast. They put on sackcloth. These are outward evidences of an inner mourning for their sin. They are sorry for their sin. Right at the end of verse 5, it says that this happened from the greatest of them to the least of them. And then verses 6 through 9 are going to camp on the greatest of them, the king. And the king's story of repentance is full of beautiful pictures for us. Let's just quickly walk through it. In verse 6, it says that he arose from the throne and removed his, his robe. This seems maybe like an unimportant detail. Why would Jonah go to the you know, telling us, well, he had been sitting down, but he got up and he took off this jacket. Like, doesn't seem important to us. But in the context of an ancient Near, East, Near Eastern kingdom, this was a statement that I am not the king in this situation. To get up off the throne and to take off the robe was the equivalent of the king of Nineveh saying, I'm not in charge, God is. That was his first step toward repentance. At the end of verse 6, he humbles himself by putting on sackcloth sitting in ashes. These were not actions that would have been of the stature and the position of a king. This was out of character. Verse 7, he declares a nationwide fast of an absurd nature that they can't even feed the animals. This is evidence that they, they don't fully know God yet. They just know that whatever God, Elohim, Yahweh, God wants, we want to give it to him. We want to obey him and follow after him. They need to be taught more fully the way because their fasting cows are not going to be consequential. But they, they want this nationwide fast. The king is declaring the desperate state of his people. And he's calling on his people to take it seriously in prayer. Specifically, in verse 8, he calls on all his people to cry out to God and to turn from their evil ways. This could be translated differently to literally mean he called them to repent and pray. To turn from their evil ways and to cry out to God, to repent and pray. And then in verse 9, the declaration of the king's heart. Who knows? Who knows? This king is not proud and presumptuous. He's not arrogantly declaring, I'm the king here. And I'll tell God what he needs to do for me. This king has humbled himself and is clinging to God's mercy and grace as his only hope. His prayer leads his people by example and the whole city repents. Which brings us to verse 10. How does God respond to the repentance of the Ninevites? Well, God relents and tells us that God saw what they did how they turned from their evil ways. And when God saw this, God relented of the disaster he had said he would do to them. Now, at first glance, as we read this, we might be tempted to think, does that mean that God changed? And if that's the question that you're wrestling with, I want to answer it 
clearly, plainly know. God does not change. Numbers chapter 23 verse 19 tells us this quite plainly, quite simply. God is not man that he should lie or son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and he will not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Elsewhere, Malachi chapter 3 verse 6, I, the Lord, do not change. So, that means this relenting that God does at the end of Jonah chapter 3 cannot be changed. What is it? What's going on here? In order to understand what is meant by saying that God relents here, we need to broaden our scope and consider the way that God interacts with human beings throughout all of Scripture. And we have many parallels for what's happening here, this promise of destruction for the, for the city of Nineveh. But I actually want to take you to the New Testament to show you a clear example where we get a conditional promise of God and an unconditional promise of God almost side by side, and you can see how this works. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If... You confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. God's promise is salvation, but it's conditional. It's the conditioned on if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. Versus verse 11, an unconditional promise of God, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. The unconditional promise of God is that his people will not ultimately be put to shame. But the conditional promise of God is that salvation comes to those who repent and believe, confess and believe. And we see the same thing unfold in the Old Testament many times over, particularly with the nation of Israel, these promises of judgment that God would bring. I will turn you over to your enemies, or I will wipe you out, I will lay you low, I will destroy your cities, unless... You repent unless you tear down your idols, unless you come back to me in faithfulness. And that's what's going on here. It's not explicitly spelled out for us in Jonah, but God's promise of destruction for Nineveh was conditional. If they do not repent, they will be destroyed. And so we can say with certainty, God did not change. Rather, God brought them to change. He brought them to the place of repentance. And because of that, he did not have to do that which he said he would do if they did not repent. Because God does not change. Now, one summary thought at this point in Jonah's story. Um, As we think about this sermon series as a whole, and and the the picture that we've been looking at in the, you have that for us? We've seen Jonah, we've seen him on the boat. We've seen Jonah in the belly, and now we've seen Jonah in the city. Jonah in the boat, Jonah in the belly, Jonah in the city. The overarching question I have for you is this. What if God had not appointed a fish to swallow Jonah to keep him alive? What if God had not hurled the storm onto the sea? What if we went from Jonah chapter 1 into an entirely different story? Jonah gets on a boat in Joppa and successfully flees the Lord to Tarshish. Or Jonah gets on a boat in Joppa 
And halfway across the sea, the storm sinks his boat and Jonah dies. What difference would this have made to Jonah? Possibly Jonah would have experienced a slow and painful death, either drowning in the Mediterranean or living out his days in the exile from God's presence in Tarshish. So clearly Jonah experienced some benefit from God's sovereign intervention in his life and bringing him back to himself. And I think our temptation as culturally individualistic American Christians is to stop right there. Is to look at this situation, to look at Jonah's life, and we would emphasize Jesus as our personal Lord and Savior and our personal relationship with God And we would prioritize and emphasize my personal deliverance from hell and my personal deliverance into heaven. But I want to ask you a second question. What difference did it make to the Ninevites that Jonah got there? We understand what difference it makes to Jonah here, but what difference did it make to the Ninevites? Consider the way that Paul would describe this in Romans chapter 10, verses 13 and following. Romans chapter 10, verses 13 says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. You jump down to verse 17. It says, So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Jonah's arrival in Nineveh makes an eternal difference to the Ninevites. Had Jonah not made it, the Ninevites would have perished after those 40 days. And by perish, I mean they would have physically died and spiritually eternally died, separated from God, and spent forever in hell. If you remember the very first week, I told you that as we wrestle our way through the book of Jonah, we will continually encounter this question. If you are a Christian, why has God saved you? What is God's purpose in your redemption? Particularly in light of the first point of application we saw today, that God doesn't just rescue, he restores to kingdom usefulness. If God saves you, he intends to use you. So maybe it would behoove you to understand what he intends to do with you. Why did God save you? Is your salvation primarily about you and your avoidance of hell and your enjoyment of heaven? Or is your salvation primarily about God's glory and his worship from you and from a people, from every language, people, tribe, and nation that he wants to reach through you? That's the question that I believe every Christian needs to wrestle with. And you may be sitting there thinking, yeah, well, that's, that's your opinion. That's your take on Scripture. Well, look at 1 Peter chapter 2 with me. I think we would all agree that Peter had a fairly good understanding of what the Lord's plans were by the time it was all said and done. He walked with him from beginning to end. He meets with Jesus on the coastline after the resurrection, before the ascension, and is told to feed my sheep. And this is what Peter writes, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, But you, speaking to the Christians, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Boy, we like that part. 
We like being his people. We like enjoying God's choosing grace of us. But it gets a little challenging when you read the rest of the verse that God had a purpose in choosing us that so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. If God has saved you, he did it so that you will tell others about him. For Jonah, the Ninevites were his others. Jonah was saved, delivered from his rebellion, and even from the depths of the sea by the fish, so that the Ninevites might hear the good news of God's mercy. So who are your Ninevites? Or I'll make it a little simpler for you. Who's your one? Who is the one person who is already in your life, in your relationships, in your circle of influence that you know doesn't know the Lord? Family and friends, neighbors and co-workers, people that God has sovereignly put into your life and you into their life in a unique way where you can speak the truth of the gospel to them in a way that no one else can. And how can they believe in him if they don't hear about him? And how can they hear about him if those who know him don't tell them unless you tell them? God intends to use every single person he saves for his purposes. And his ultimate purpose in all of creation is the advancement of his kingdom, the glory of his name, and the worship that he deserves from every language, people, tribe, and nation. So brothers and sisters, on the authority of God's word, not my opinion, On the authority of God's word, I want to tell you with full assurance that God has saved you so that you will tell others about him. That's his purpose in redemption. That's why you have personally been saved. God has saved you to make you a witness. So who's your one? If you were with us this morning in small group Bible study, you should have received one of these. It's a little card says, who's your one on it? If you weren't there, you didn't get one in your class, look around in the pews, in the pew racks, you can find some. I want you to find it. I want you to find it right now. I want you to get this in your hand, and we're going to wrestle with this right now. Who is your one? If you know who this person is, some of you already feel a clear conviction from the Lord. I know. I'm going to see him at lunch today over at Grandma's house. That's uncle so-and-so who does not know Jesus, and I need to be faithful to share the gospel with him. Or this is somebody I'm going to see tomorrow morning at work at 8 o'clock. I see him every week, and I know they don't know the Lord. If you know who that person is, I want you to write their name on these little blanks, one on the small side, one on the big side. And as you leave today, I'm going to have the ushers, are going to have the Elijah Fund baskets at the doors. I'm not, we don't need money. I want you to put these names into those baskets. And that serves two functions. One, it is you promising before the Lord, this is a person that I'm going to pursue with the gospel this week. I'm going to pray and look for opportunities to share the gospel with this person. And number two, I want this stack of hopefully hundreds of names of people in Saline County and the surrounding area who are going to hear the gospel this week. And I will spend time every single day praying for these people by name. And if you will go so far as to write your name on the card as well, like off to the side or on the other side, I will pray for you 
that God would give you opportunity and the words to say to be able to communicate the gospel with these friends and family and coworkers and neighbors. On the, on the longer side that you will keep, it has 30 days worth of scripture listed, and I would like you to take that in just a verse or two, but you can read that and then pray the truth of that scripture over your one. So the first day is John 14, 6. Jesus said to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. And so you come to your one and you, you pray, Lord, I, I want to pray for uh, the one that's on my list is Marwan. Maybe it's Chris or John or Kathy or whatever the person's name is. I want to pray for that person that, Lord, by your grace, they would learn and see that Jesus is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. And that, God, you would give me opportunity to share the gospel with them so that they would know there's no other way to be reconciled to God except through Christ. Pretty simple, right? Maybe you're sitting there and you, you don't know who your one would be. You don't know who, who you would write down. Then I would say, take this card, stick it in your Bible, and every morning this week as you spend time in God's Word, spend time praying for God to reveal a lost person in your life, in your workplace, in your friend group, in your circle of influence. He will do it. I know that people don't understand this for sure, but there are more lost people than found people in Harrisburg. I hope you know that. We are severely outnumbered even here. So there are plenty of lost people in your circles of influence, whether you recognize it or not. So pray that God would open your eyes to who is around you, that he would call you to be a witness to them. And when you have that person, write it down, bring it back to me. You can bring it on Wednesday night, you can bring it on Sunday, put it in the offering plate. I don't care what you do. I want the name so that I can pray for them. Okay? I want our people to do this. And I want us to do this as a church family. It should become part of our vernacular that when we speak to each other in this place or out of this place, it's totally understood for me to say, hey, who's your one? And how are you engaging them? How can I be praying for you in this? That should be part of our DNA as a church. Brothers and sisters, sharing the gospel is the very purpose for which God has saved us. And if we cannot be committed to doing that, and we're not willing to be accountable to each other to do that, we might as well just quit and go home. Because that's what he has saved us for. He has appointed us to be his witnesses. So the application for us, God has saved us, not primarily for ourselves, but for himself to be his witnesses. So who's your one? Before we close, one final note. Each week, Jonah has done us the courtesy of leaving us with a cliffhanger. This week, we have to jump into chapter 4 to see it. We see this great revival outbreak of faith in Nineveh. And you have to get to chapter 4, verse 1, before we hit the cliffhanger. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. I didn't see that one coming. When the preacher preaches and the whole city repents, and it makes him mad. So... Come back next week. We'll look at why Jonah reacts in this way and what we can learn from it for ourselves. But for this week, three applications that we have touched on today that I want to leave you with. Number one, God is a God of second chances. God does not simply save us to shelf us. He restores us to kingdom usefulness 
I don't care where you've come from, what you've got in your background, what you've got in your history. There is no such thing as sin baggage that's too big for God to deal with. If he has saved you, he intends to use you. So I pray that you'll be obedient to that. Number two, good gospel preaching requires explaining the bad news of man's sin and its consequences. Just as patients have no interest in a cure for a disease they do not know they have, lost people have no desire for the gospel to save them from the sickness of sin that they don't recognize in their own lives. If we want our lost friends and family members to see and savor Christ as the ultimate solution for our sin problem, we have to introduce them to the fact that they have a sin problem. We cannot fall victim to our culture's preference for positive speech, positive thinking. We have to be bold and clear about the problem of sin and our broken relationship with God because of it. And on the backdrop of that bad news, the good news of the gospel is sweet. Third and finally, God has saved us not primarily for ourselves, but for himself to be a witness. That is his purpose in redemption. He has saved you so that you will tell others about him. So who's your one? Fill out that card, drop it in the baskets as you leave today. And, and may this be a part of the DNA of this church that we ask each other, who's your one? How can I pray for them? How are you engaging them with the gospel? How can I help? Let's stand together and pray. Father, we are Jonah. We confess to you the ways in which we have sinned, like Jonah. Lord, we, we acknowledge that your grace toward us is not simply rescue from the consequences of our sin, but it's restoration to kingdom usefulness. And so, Lord, we repent for times that we have seen our sin baggage instead of the depths of your grace, and we have not rightly recognized you as our all-sufficient Savior who's capable of using us for your purposes. Father, we repent for the numbers of times that we have shied away from the biblical truth of man's sin and the consequences thereof in favor of some positive spin on the so-called gospel that is all about life improvement and man's happiness. God, we recognize that your word is about your holiness. Your kingdom is about your worship. And if we're going to be faithful witnesses to it, then we have to proclaim the whole truth of your gospel, which is that our sin has wrecked our relationship with you, that we are dead and there is nothing we can do to restore ourselves. But you have graciously sent Christ to live the life we could not live of perfect obedience to yourself, to die the death we deserve to die, and to rescue us through his resurrection from sin and death and even hell self that we could live forever for your glory father may we be faithful witnesses to the true gospel and lord may we be jonah in a good way as we go into our community and engage people with the truth of your word god i pray that you would grant grace the way that you did in nineveh that we would see thousands repent and believe for their good for our good, Father, use us, and for the glory of your name, we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to have song.